So a few weeks back, we looked at Isaiah chapter 6. It's a passage of scripture that highlights the glory, the majesty, and the holiness of God. Right from the start of that chapter, we read, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe, it filled the temple. Now, Isaiah had no doubt that as he looked around the temple, that what he was gazing upon truly was the God of Israel, the one who spoke creation into existence, who rescued his people from slavery and, um, in Egypt. And as we worked our way through that passage, we were reminded of God's holiness. It's the sort of passage that as you read it, you can almost feel the foundations of the thresholds of the temple shaking beneath your feet. We want to cry out with Isaiah, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And, and if you have not read Isaiah chapter 6 ever, I would encourage you to go back and read it and get a sense of what I'm talking about. The, 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 the weight of that passage is palpable as you work your way through it. Now, this Advent season, we look to the prophet Isaiah to help guide us through the darkness to provide us with comfort as we made our way through the valley of the shadow of death. And this morning, on Christmas Eve, we'll be confronted with the shocking and unexpected means that God used to accomplish his will. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 52, and we're going to be working through verses 13 all the way through chapter 53, verse 12. And so the passage begins with a call for readers to pay attention. It says, behold, or look. Like, this is the Hebrew Bible's way of getting our attention, of saying, hey, I have something really important to tell you right now. So listen up close. And what are we being told to look at? Well, it says, behold, or look, my servant. We're, asked, we're being asked to fix our gaze on the servant of the Lord. Now, as always, a little bit of context goes a long way. See, Isaiah referred to this servant quite a bit throughout the book. At first, when we hear his name, it's obvious that the servant was the nation of Israel. It was Israel's responsibility to be a light to the nations, to show the world what God was like. But somewhere around chapter 49, we start to see that this servant begins to take on a different shape. No longer is Isaiah speaking of a nation, but rather, he's now focusing in on an individual. And so Isaiah says, look, behold, pay attention. My servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind, so shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him, for that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. And so, so Isaiah is, is, is fixing our gaze upon the servant, and he's saying, my servant shall act wisely. What does that mean? Well, a better way to maybe understand this is, my servant will succeed. My servant will prosper. And not only will the servant of Yahweh succeed, but the text says he shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. Now those words are familiar. 
Because the last time we heard language like that was back in chapter 6, the passage I just referred to, when Isaiah was gazing upon the glory of the Lord in the temple. This is like what comedians will typically do in a stand-up routine. It's, it's like a callback, right, where, where they mention something at the beginning of the set, and then at the end there's this comedic callback, and you're reminded. You're like, oh, okay, that's what he was talking about, and that's exactly what's going on here. It's a literary callback. And what a callback is supposed to do It's supposed to immediately bring to mind a previous scene, event, or dialogue that had occurred. It's supposed to help us recall the emotions from that previous moment and then reinforce the same emotion in the current scene. We've experienced this. We know what I'm talking about here. That's what Isaiah is doing here. Isaiah wants to stir up those feelings of of being in the temple, of feeling the threshold shake beneath our feet, of, of saying, oh my God, I am a man of unclean lips. Please heal me, forgive me. We're supposed to feel that tension. But something's different about this passage. This passage is eerily distinct from that of Isaiah chapter 6. Right, to, to look at verses 14 through 15, it says, And many were astonished at you. Right? So in 13, he says, The Lord is high and lifted up and exalted. And then it says in 14, As many were astonished at you. Why? Because his appearance was so marred, beyond human semblance, his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Right? It says that people were astonished at the sight of the servant, this high and lifted up one. But astonished really doesn't capture what's going on here. The people were appalled at what they were looking at. They were horrified at what they were gazing upon. Why? Because the high and lifted up one, he didn't look all that high and lifted up anymore. He was marred. He was disfigured. He barely looked human. Verse 15 says that he shall sprinkle. A better word there is he shall startle the nations by his presence. We read that kings will shut their mouths because of him. In other words, to say anything positive about this figure, this servant, it wouldn't have made any sense. There was nothing positive to say. But that's the point. That's exactly what Isaiah wants us to wrestle with, which is why the text Ask the question in chapter 53, verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? The Net Bible, another translation, says it like this. Who would have believed what we just heard? In other words, who could possibly believe that this marred, barely human-looking, disfigured individual would have anything to do with the high and lifted up one from Isaiah chapter 6? It then says, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Again, to borrow from the Net Bible's translation, when was the Lord's power revealed through him? The text is again looking at this disfigured individual and basically saying, really? That's the servant? That's the guy who wields the power of Yahweh? Do you track what's going on here? We're supposed to be thinking of Yahweh in the temple, but we're looking at this disfigured, beyond human semblance, marred, broken, bloody individual. But yet our emotions are attached to that Isaiah 6 passage. 
We're, we're conflicted. We're like, wait a second, high and lifted up, but he's broken. High and lifted up, but he's marred. High and lifted up, but he's beyond human semblance. High and lifted up, but I can't even really make out if he's human or not. I'm reminded of a passage from Luke chapter 4. It's after Jesus reads from the scroll in the synagogue about the spirit of the Lord resting upon him, how he's the one who's going to usher in the year of the Lord's favor. And the question everybody starts asking, wait, isn't that Joseph's kid? Or in Matthew 13, after Jesus was finished teaching through this series of parables, he's in Nazareth, his hometown, and people start asking, but isn't that the carpenter's son? Isn't that Mary's kid? Like, what in the world is he talking about? And that's exactly what the text starts to get at. It says, who has believed us? 53 verse 1. What he has heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. That whole idea of, of being, being brought up like a young plant, it's to highlight the, the very normal and regular natural growth of this individual, this servant. He's just like us. Just like us. Very normal, very natural. And, and, and this very normal and natural individual, he's not some perfect human specimen. There's nothing stately or regal about him. He wasn't particularly handsome. I find that interesting that the text points out that like he really wasn't much to look at. You kind of look at him as like, all right, yeah. Like you'd pass him on the street, you wouldn't think twice. Right? This is not like someone who's like, you know, on the cover of GQ magazine. Like, this is a really regular, maybe less than regular looking individual. That's what's being articulated here. But, but even more so, he was actually the opposite of impressive. Because look what it says in verse 3. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their spaces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. People didn't like this guy. They rejected him. He suffered and endured pain and illness. He was the sort of guy that we would try to not make eye contact with if we passed him on the street. Or you might even tell your kids, like, no, just keep your head forward. Just walk straight. Walk straight. Don't pay attention. Right? We've all done it. For better, for worse, we've all done it. That's what Isaiah is trying to highlight for us. That's the picture he's painting. The high and lifted up one does not appear all that high and lifted up. See, what this passage is doing is it's reorienting our understanding of what it means to be strong, what it means to be powerful, what it means to be mighty, what it means to be lifted up. It's very similar to if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, this idea of an upside-down kingdom, that what we perceive as being beautiful, as being wonderful, as being great and majestic, is actually very different in, in the kingdom of heaven. And he's putting it right out there for us. Now, to blow the surprise, this servant, this sufferer, we're talking about Jesus here, okay? In case anyone was like, I wonder who we're talking about. Like, who is this guy? Like, it's Jesus. We're referring to Jesus. In fact, there's really no other figure in history that would fit what this passage is presenting, and we haven't even gotten to the wild stuff yet. Now, if we're hearing these sorts of things for the first time, 
our mind would not go to a savior. In fact, most of us in this room would want nothing to do with the sort of individual I've been describing. And if you disagree with me, if you're sitting there, well, actually, I'm, I'm very, like, you know, I'm enlightened and I, I disagree and I would absolutely see this broken down, bloody, on the side of the street figure as someone to worship. Like, you're lying to yourself. And if you do believe that, it's only because you've been shaped by the Judeo-Christian worldview for your entire lives. Even if you aren't a Christian or even if you've never set foot in a church. What I mean is that prior to the story of Jesus, it wasn't taboo to look down upon the weak and broken of society. And prior to the story of Jesus finding its way into the fabric of Western thought, publicly looking down upon the weak and broken of society was what successful people did. Now, successful people still do it, we just don't publicize it, right? The shock and awe of this passage, it gets lost on us because one, most of us, if not all of us, we know the story of Christmas. That Jesus was born in a stable among animals in filth. We've heard his teachings, bizarre teachings that the poor, the meek, and the broken of the world are blessed, and that it's harder for rich people to enter the kingdom of heaven. We know the story of Jesus being crucified, a death that was reserved for enemies of the state. But there was a time when this sort of thing wasn't scandalous, or was scandalous, excuse me, especially if it were being said of some great political leader. But truth be told, it's still scandalous. Because most of us, and this is important, this is where the text upends our thinking. This is where the text attacks all of the ideologies that we have just been breathing in for the bulk of our existence. Most of us, when we start to dig down beneath the surface, we would prefer a savior who is strong, rich, beautiful, and overflowing with power. And there's a reason for that. There's a reason why our understanding of strength, leadership, power, and success is so distorted, and that's true for us as followers of Jesus as well. See, we have been so broken not just like in the fact that we're separated from God because of our sin, but our brains actually don't function properly because of what sin has done to our lives, what sin has done to our world. I've heard people say things during election seasons like, I'm not voting for a pastor. And while I get the sentiment, it's a statement and a worldview that's shaped not by the story of Jesus' birth, life, death, resurrection, and reign, but rather by the life, death, and reign of the first Adam. The first Adam who, who decided that, that instead of, of, of submitting to God's rule and reign, he was going to grasp at power and authority on his own. He was going to make his own law, right? That's what it means to be autonomous, to make our own law. And, and some theologians actually argue that 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 practicing this, this autonomy is the root of, of sin. That we are choosing to follow our own desires, our own views of what is right and wrong, rather than some external law. 
And that has seeped into everything we do. In other words, we are the ones who have despised and rejected this man of sorrows. We're the ones who can't believe that the power of God is fully displayed in and through weakness. Man, that doesn't, that doesn't sit right with us. And the reason why it doesn't sit right with us is because as we look around the world, it's not what we see winning the game. It's not what we see declaring victory. What we see declaring victory, what we see winning, are things like power, strength, might. It's not things like weakness. It's not things like poverty. It's not things like peacemaking, mercy, compassion. It's the opposite of that. And so when Jesus entered into the world, he turned all of that upside down on its head. And he said, no, 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 no. That's the story of Adam. That's not the story of the kingdom. The story of the kingdom is one that flips all of that on its head. The story of the kingdom is such that, that power and might are seen in and through the weakness of the suffering servant. The high and lifted up one is the suffering servant. Do you track with that? That's miraculous. That is mind-blowing. That's why the story of Christianity is so scandalous. That's why the story of Christianity doesn't actually make any sense in a world that's broken and sinful because everyone wants a powerful, strong, might-is-right leader. But Jesus says, that ain't how it goes because the high and lifted up one is the suffering servant. If you get anything from the sermon this morning. The high and lifted up one is the suffering servant. And that should reorient every single part of our lives, if that's true. If that's true, it should reorient every single thing we do. But the beauty of the gospel and the beauty of a passage like this it does exactly what I've been talking about it confronts our unbelief. It confronts our distortions, our faulty understandings of how the world should be, and it does so by lifting up the person and work of Jesus. On Christmas, we celebrate and remember the birth of Christ, the day when the word became flesh and dwelt among us. In the Apostle Paul's first letter to Timothy, he said that Christ came into the world to save sinners. In other words, he was born with a goal and a purpose to save sinners, and here's how he did it. Here's how he did it. Verse 4, chapter 53. Surely he has borne our griefs. He carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him not, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. In fact, verse 5 is the central point of this entire passage. And the central point of this entire passage draws our gaze to peace. Shalom sort of peace, that peace that, that infiltrates every single aspect of our lives. Emotional peace, spiritual peace, intellectual and mental peace, physical peace, ultimately worldwide peace. That's the sort of thing that is being ushered into the world through the high and lifted up one that's actually the suffering servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, but he didn't say a word. He didn't open up his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. And so he opened not his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand out of the anguish of his soul. He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong. Why? Because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Did you all just hear what I read? And if you didn't follow, I would encourage you, spend some time today, this week, reading through this passage. First of all, the way Isaiah speaks about this suffering servant, it really can only be about Jesus. And the details of this chapter points it out. Think about it. The normal and natural birth and upbringing of verse 2, like a young plant, it points to the very normal and natural birth and upbringing of Jesus. The silence of the servant in verse 7 matches the silence of Jesus when he stood before his accusers. The piercings and stripes of verse 5 remind us of the brutality of the cross. But here's the kicker. Here's the detail that very easily could have been passed over. We could explain away the other stuff, but verse 9 is one that we cannot explain away. It talks about him being buried with a rich man in his death. Such a specific detail, one that starts to fully make sense when we read in Matthew chapter 27, 57, that when it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph. He took the body and wrapped it in clean linen and laid it in his own tomb. Jesus was buried in the tomb of a rich man. And Isaiah, some 700 years prior to that, lays it out. That's what's going to happen. It's one of those passages that shouts out, this book is inspired, I should believe what it says. It's, It's unbelievable. It's so cool. But second... And maybe even more important than those little details, this passage speaks of the love with which God has loved us, that he gave his only son, that whoever should believe in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus came to save sinners. He came into the world. He was born with a singular purpose, to bring about salvation individually and cosmically. That's why he came. And the way he did it not only provides us with the forgiveness we need to enter into the presence of Almighty God, the one who is high and lifted up, who fills the temple with just the hem of his garment, but it also shapes and forms the way we've been called to live out this kingdom life. 
that our worldviews are no longer to be informed by the might-makes-right posture of this world, but rather through the Lion of Judah who is as a lamb who has been slain. It's why Jesus can say with full confidence, blessed are the poor in spirit because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn because they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek because they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness because they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart because they shall see God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake because theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and other utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad because your reward is great in heaven because they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, blessed are all the things that the world perceives as curses. Did you track with that? Blessed are all the things that the world perceives as curses. Blessed are the weak the broken, the poor, the bruised reeds, and the smoldering wicks. On Christmas, we remember the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Prince of peace, the mighty God who did not enter into the world with pomp and circumstance, but rather in weakness. On Christmas, we remember that the high and lifted up one, from conception to birth, In both life and in death, he ushered in a salvation that left rulers and kings scratching their heads. It doesn't make sense. The cross is 100% a scandal. We don't want a weak savior, but this is what God has given to us. And he's given it to us Because that is the character of God, a humble, self-giving being who loves us so much that he demonstrated who he was in what he did. And what he did was he died on a cross. He was born into poverty and he died a criminal's death. And in so doing, not only did he achieve salvation for us, but he has reshaped what power, what strength, what might, what authority looks like. That's good news, not just for us individually. It's good news for the world because that's why we can love our enemies as ourselves. That's why we can love our neighbors because Jesus tells us that's actually the thing that will bring about flourishing and and success and prosperity in our lives. That's wild. That's wild. That's the story of Christianity, and it's so beautiful. And it hits on every single aspect of our lives. In the way we engage our children, in the way we engage our spouses, in the way we engage our brothers and our sisters, in the way we engage neighbors, in the way we engage our coworkers, in the way we drive down Route 70, every single part of it, every single part of it says the other person's more important than you. Why? Because Jesus died on a cross. He reshaped it all. He's turning the fall back. He's saying, no, 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 no. Self-law is not how you achieve prosperity, but rather submitting to the cross and submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. That's what brings about true salvation and flourishing for us as a people. That's good news. The cross is the means by which we are forgiven 
And the cross is the means by which we are formed into image bearers of Jesus. That is good, good news. That's what Christmas is about. That's the story of a little baby being born in a cave surrounded by filth. One of the most unlikely means by which the all-powerful high and lifted up one would achieve salvation. How many times have you asked, why doesn't God just wave a magic wand and get rid of all the bad and, and just end this thing already? Because that's not the way he works. He works through the broken. He works through the weak. That's how he achieves salvation. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we love you. Lord, I'm so grateful for that story, Lord God, I really am. I'm so grateful that the truth and reality of the world is that the high and lifted up one is the suffering servant. I'm so grateful that the true story of the world is the fact that the Lion of Judah is as a lamb who has been slain. I'm so grateful that it's because your son Jesus is in the form of God that he does not count equality with you, something to be grateful, Lord God, that, that this is who you are, this is our God, self-giving, humble, loving, gracious, compassionate. Thank you that you move towards us in our sin, that you forgive us, that you remove our iniquity so that we can stand before you, confident, Lord God, because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross. Thank you that our enemies are crushed because of death, Lord God. What an odd way to, to win a battle, Lord God. But that's what you showed us. That's what you taught us, Lord. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who struggle in this morning, Lord. Anyone who's carrying burdens that feel unbearable, Lord God, that, that this morning would be a time where they feel uplifted, encouraged, and, and cared for well, Lord God. God, we love you with all of our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.